Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo. Today, I'm joined by voice coach Lucy Cornell. Lucy is an expert in coaching professionals and is the CEO and founder of Cornell Voice Advisory. She also leads the international voice coaching team for advocacy courses run by the Australian Bar Association and the General Council of the Bar of South Africa. In this episode, Lucy shares how we can use our voices for maximum persuasion and control in the courtroom. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast. Hi, Bibi. Thanks so much for having me. Lucy, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, please? I'm a voice coach, a voice consultant, and I have trained for many years to get to a point where I am now working with business professionals who use their voice in a professional way to help them sound more influential, more inspirational, have more gravitas, more presence or more impact or have more control when they're in spoken exchanges. Have you always been a good speaker? Gosh, that's a great question. I think I was actually quite shy when I was young. However, I loved performing and I loved expressing myself, whether it was through music or singing or acting, and was really supported through school in that. And I suppose I found my voice and I was, well, you know, it's interesting. I was given permission to use my voice through my childhood and I was endorsed for that and I was supported with that. From what you said, it sounds like your development was more organic rather than you proactively seeking to improve your voice. Is that right? Yes, gosh, it was totally organic. To become a voice coach, there's not a traditional path. You don't just follow a university degree. However, I did do two university degrees, uh, arts and you know, literature and trained as a teacher. But then I also did a applied science degree, researching the voice. But the real work for me was in, as you say, an organic way. I followed really inspirational and enigmatic teachers who were doing this work. So I found myself living in London and I would be sitting in rehearsal room floors of the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company and other acting schools. I trained in America Gosh, I went to New York five times, trained at Shakespeare and Company in Massachusetts as an actor and as a voice teacher, and took me five years to train in a particular methodology called the Linklater voice work. And I eventually trained with Kristen Linklater herself in 2003. And so it took me five years really doing her work to be designated by her in her methodology. What distinguishes a Linklater voice coach from a regular voice coach? There were two master voice teachers in the world, and both of them sadly passed away last year. Kristen Linklater, who was my teacher, and Cicely Berry, who was the head of voice at Royal Shakespeare Company in the UK. Kristen looked at, well, how does the psyche and the psychology and the emotional state of someone or the situation you're in affect how your voice comes out? It's a sophisticated architecture of exercises that take you from exploring your physical, emotional, psychological and vocal habits, undoing them in a very methodical way all the way through to freeing up your voice. And her work is called Freeing the Natural Voice. So that's its distinctive mark. And that's the Linklater methodology. 
Now, I know that you work with different people in terms of voice consulting, in particular barristers. Who else do you work with? I've made a deliberate decision in the last 18 years to focus on working with business professionals. And so I spent a bit of time working with actors, but I found that I I just got more satisfaction working with business professionals because it gave me a broader touch point of different needs across different industries. And so what I've had to do is I've worked, gosh, I've worked on every, across every industry, lots of lawyers, engineers, accountants, actuaries, gosh, everybody really, marketing, sales, and all the way from CEO all the way through. And I spend a lot of time actually working with women and the diversity realm, the groups that aren't the dominant code. What I've had to do in the last 18 years, because I'm working in the business world, which is opposed to the theatrical world, which Kristen's work is designed for, I've found that I've built a lot of my own methodology because the application of business speakers is totally different, obviously, than being on stage. And then again, we, we sort of narrow that into the bar and the courtroom. And for advocates, it's a totally unique form in the courtroom. And there's a shape and a energy and a definitely a structure that we have to move within. It's much tighter than the boardroom. I really enjoyed the analysis of getting into that. What led you to working with barristers? I met Phil Greenwood, who is a silk in Sydney, in Australia. And Phil and I knew each other for you know a period of years. And he called me one day and he said, now I'm doing this program and I thought it'd be interesting to get you involved. It's with, it's with uh, advocates, barristers, and we're going to do this week-long intensive program. And we've done it one year and it's sort of modelled off what they do in the UK and other common law jurisdictions, but maybe you could uh, come along and do some voice and performance work in it. And I naively said, sure, Phil, I'll do that, do whatever, that sounds fun. And so I came along and did the week and gosh, I'm glad that I survived that because apparently (laughs) in the background, the suspicion was that I would come in and make all these barristers who were, you know, five years plus, they know what they're doing, be like a tree and sing to the moon and, you know, be on the floor and roll around and be dogs and do nursery rhymes. I mean, that's just so shameful. So uh, thankfully, I was slightly a bit ahead of the curve. Have you had an opportunity to see barristers in action in court? I have seen many barristers in court and in different courts. I am going to admit that my partner is a barrister. Is that bad? It's not uh, he's bad. Now a silk. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I would say that. <laughs> he's a silk now in Sydney, which is uh, really useful for me because I can ask him all those embarrassing questions that I would never admit to any other barristers, like, what's a prosecutor again? And. <laughs> which one is the complainant? What does that mean? You know, all those things that you don't know when you're not a lawyer. I can ask him all of those questions, but we spend hours ad nauseum hours talking about the nuance of what happened in a courtroom and what happened for him in court that day. So I have been into court and seen lots of barristers in court working, and I have seen a lot of barristers practising in courses so in the training room on the training floor which is deep respect for those of you who are in court definitely a different form and I see 
you know, those intensive weeks are pretty high impact emotionally and with your ego, but definitely going into court, I think of that as an elite athletic pursuit. When you've seen barristers in court or other trial lawyers, what has impressed you? I'm impressed by the intensity of the room and the claustrophobia of it and how an advocate can still think (laughs) that always impresses me that they still survive in the intensity of that. I walk into a courtroom as a layperson and I get anxiety. I can feel my breath tighten and my body start to get fearful. And that must be what it's like for a witness. I mean, I'm not even dealing with an emotional cause here. I'm just walking in as a layperson. So I think what impresses me is that it's designed, as I understand, it's designed to be that dense energy, that tight form in order for everyone to feel that this is important. And I see, because I have worked with actors and I work with other people who aren't barristers or advocates, and I understand what it takes to speak. I think speaking is a difficult act. Speaking in the moment when you have to be face-to-face with another human being, it's a difficult act, particularly when the stakes are high. So that alone is a high-wire act. Then you add on the robes and the wig and the furnishings and the, the intensity of the environment, the low ceiling, the fact that you're not miked, the fact that you've got a very intelligent human being in front of you who's going to catch you off guard at any minute. And then you've got your opponent over here who's going to barb you in the side with some underhand comment. And you've got your client behind you. All of this emotional density. And then you have to be intelligent and sharp. If you can achieve it, that's what impresses me. You've mentioned elite athleticism as well as energetic athleticism. So I think I understand what you mean, but can you just expand on that, please? So I think I need to define what energy is so it's not a scary phrase because I think that's sometimes a a scary phrase for people to hear. Energy is intellectual, it's emotional, it's psychological and it's physical and it's vocal. It's all of those things. And because you're coming in and speaking in a courtroom in a live experience, it's like going in with half your case written, really, if you're only thinking it's an intellectual act. It's got to be a vocal, psychological, emotional act as well. It's like you're a sailing boat walking in there. You've got to be aware of where are the wind's going to move you. What's the tide doing? Where's the competition coming from if you're in a race? Do I have my keel on? What's my spinnaker doing? You've got to have all of the, you know, the plan, you know, the race plan, which is your form that you've prepared earlier. But you don't know when there's going to be a buffet of wind coming from that direction, which might be the judge's question, or your opposing counsel stands up and wants to oppose something that you're saying. You have to tack. You have to be able to navigate the winds that come at you. And that's an energetic act. You can't just rely on your intellect in that. I don't think I would ever have described it in that way, but I do understand what you're saying. I think I've previously described it when I've had conversations with others in this way. I feel like an island. You've got the judge, might be against you. I've got a series of opponents who are picking at me, they're against me as well. I may have just told my client some advice that they're not really interested in hearing. So I'm on my own there. And then I've got a witness to deal with as well, who's not playing ball with me. So I absolutely feel like an island. And I also see 
from what you say, a complete and, ab- and utter absence, really, in terms of energy. I'm just trying to think on an intellectual plane. So how do we navigate that energetic landscape so that we can elevate our performances? Great. I love that you get that, Bibi. It is an energetic landscape. That's how I explain it too. So you're either there on your island, you're either the cork on the, the ocean or you're the boat. The judge asks you a question. Where do you go for the answer? Yes, you have to find it in your intelligence. But actually, and I'm going to get really specific here, if your body tightens up and everyone's got their own habits, their idiosyncratic habits, which might be your toes tighten in your shoes or your knees lock together or your inner thighs tighten, all of that will hold your breath. Less breath comes into your body, which means that you can't think very clearly. And we all know if any anyone plays sport or you have a musical life or you have any sort of poetry or painting or anything that anyone does as a hobby, you know that when you're best in flow when you're relaxed and you're breathing. And so if you're tightening up and holding your breath, what happens for any artistic pursuit or sporting um, activity is we will not be using energy efficiently. And so your brain will want to kick into overdrive and we can't then have space to choose the myriad of thoughts that we have. Time gets much shorter and we'll jump for the first thought. So you don't have time to actually choose wisely. Wisdom and creativity comes from relaxation and breath. So you know that you're most creative when you're really chilled out. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be totally chilled out in court. We have to have some pep and some energy because we've got all of that going on around us. But actually what I do with many barristers and advocates is work on, and this is the principle for all performance, the higher the impulse, the higher the stakes, the deeper you need to relax, the deeper you need to breathe. Just thinking about that, really, it it sounds almost simple, which is breathe and relax. Yeah. And I know it isn't. I mean, it's simple. It sounds simple. Breathe, relax and breathe. Duh. Okay, sure. We can do that. But yes, in full flight, what we rely on is our MO, what we're used to, our habits. But actually, it's not too hard. It literally is a physical thing. And it's a really fast physical thing. But you have to learn the physical thing to do, which is what does it feel like to let my feet relax on the floor or my knees soften or my, you know, belly soften under the robes? I mean, golly, it sounds a little bit trite, but, you know, I've worked in, I think, seven common law jurisdictions now. And I remember working in South Africa and this lovely barrister, she used to wear red stilettos to court all the time like, you know, massive red stilettos. And we did this bit of work on body and getting in grounded and finding your ballast or your keel or whatever you want to do it, getting into your feet. And I said, well, what would it be like if you just throw all throw your shoes off? You know, that's terribly actory. Oh, golly, we better not do that. But they were in for it. So they did it. She took her shoes off, totally changed her advocacy after that. So she now she never wears shoes and she kicks her shoes off under the you know table and wears her robes and she wears bare feet. Sorry if I'm telling any secrets. But it changed her advocacy because it really helped her land and breathe and find some time so actually it was a physical act for her of which was a quick not just the taking shoes off but in the moment and this is the tricky bit it seems simple when you say breathe and relax but actually the hard bit is the fitness of doing it every moment and this is the very clear principle that I 
always work on and I love working on with barristers is that, and particularly in appellate advocacy, where you it is an improvisation. You've got three judges at you and they're going to interrupt you any second. So your saviour is if you're thinking in moments, not thinking in I'm going to do my opening or I'm going to ask... I'm going to do a monologue. Oh, my gosh, how many monologues have you heard in court where, you know, I'm, how can I stop, please? The, your saviour is moments. And by that I mean you give an idea and then you land with yourself and you check with your body, am I relaxed? The best place to be is to think of your advocacy as dealing in moments. And in each moment, after each moment, which is an idea, you arrive back in your body, relax and breathe and then the next breath thought comes out on sound and you speak it. There's another moment. Arrive, breathe, vibrate, speak. There you go. So when we're talking about moments, I'm sure it's not like exact. So for example, like every five minutes, it'll be a moment. Mm. But can you just expand a bit more so that everyone can get what you mean by a moment? Uh, yeah, a moment is a thought. So what happens now between you and me in improvisation, because we're improvising this in a way, I see you smile and that's a moment to me. And so that gives me information. And so I then said, I see you smile. And then I have to think, well, I'm actually right now while I'm doing it, I'm holding my breath in my tight, I'm feeling tight here. So I can feel that going. And so I'm getting breathless. So these are all moments that I'm moving through. If I was doing it in a way that I felt I had more control, I would literally be doing this. That's me getting rid of a lot of held breath that I was just having then. And now I'm back to a moment. And then this is a moment. And a moment can be even just a moment of silence. And now I'm letting my breath go. Even that phrase, now I'm letting my breath go, was a moment. So do you see a moment is a thought. It's not even a sentence. It's You may have five thoughts in a sentence. So moment by moment. So that you're constantly checking in with yourself. This is where you have real control. Real control is when you're letting go between the thoughts in order to breathe so that you can choose what to do next. And I'm sure everyone's had that experience of you're thinking ahead of yourself or you're beside yourself or you're many barristers above themselves or you're behind yourself. Or, you know, that feeling of you're out of sync with yourself, that is actually not control. That's out of control. So real control is just coming back to landing and so I can choose where to go navigate the room. That's real control. That's good advocacy, I think, when you're in true control, which is not clutching. What I can also see really is that it gives you space. Mm. In looking at things moment to moment, one, you're present because you're only dealing with what's going on at that time. You're checking in with yourself. How am I feeling? noticing if there's a load of tension and then you can do something to release that tension. And this is happening in like nanoseconds, isn't it? Just checking in. Nanoseconds. Yeah, it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? It sounds like it when you say it that way, when you we, we talk through the an analysis of what's the specifics of what's going on, it sounds like, oh my God, there's more stuff I've got to deal with. But actually it is a nanosecond. And to exactly what you're saying, it's finding space. So the space is physical, internal physical space, but it's also thinking space, it's breathing space, and it's creating space, as in you're able to create more 
and you're able to choose within that space. So it feels like you're doing more, but actually you're doing less in order to be clearer. And that's the goal, I think, is wouldn't it be lovely to be a barrister, an advocate in a courtroom and feel really clear? It's crystal clear. I know where I'm going now rather than, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing yet. Do you know? That, I think, would be heavenly. I have the magic potion for you. Arrive and breathe. (laughs) (laughs) And you're right, this is completely advocacy. We had a previous guest, Joe Sidhu QC, who spoke about the soft skills of advocacy and breathing and being in the moment. Ah, great. They're both in alignment with each other. Mm. The other thing that I was wondering about was the physical aspect of it. And I remember when I was doing the advanced advocacy course in Australia with the ABA, Australian Bar Association. And I I got the opportunity to speak with some Linklater voice coaches. And one of the things that they had said to me was, I could scrunch my toes in my shoes. No one can see it, but get that tension and Mm. then release it. Is that something that you encourage your clients to do as well? Perhaps like scrunch your toes or scrunch your shoulders and let it go so that you can relax. There are things that you do before you go to court that warm you up and get you into the zone as a performer or an athlete. Do you have a warm-up when you go to court? I mean, I asked that of a whole group of advocates once and I said, well, what's your, what are your warm-ups? Massive presumption. And one guy put his hand up and said, oh, have a glass of water? And I thought that was just so funny. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to go and run the, you know, 100-metre sprint at the Olympics, you don't just have a glass of water. <laughs> That's what you're doing. So we've got to warm you up. So there's things you do beforehand and then there's things you can do in court. So, yeah, under your robes, scrunch your toes and let them relax because what it does is it reminds you, oh, that's right, I have a body down here. It's not just my brain that's working here. The rest of my body is in this room and I've got to pay attention to that and deal with it because if you don't, what happens is we get monotone, we get not loud, we don't get enough volume, we put people to sleep. I I mean, I'm talking judges as well. You know, I'm doing work with magistrates and judges and it's the same story. I mean, we get stuttery, hesitancy, unclear, over-talking. There's no eloquence and specificity if you don't have the time to choose. So, yeah, tightening your feet is a nice one and relaxing your feet into just to remind you that you're there. You can do it with any part of your body, really. That's kind of a fun one. There are lots of things that you can do to get yourself in the zone I highly recommend you find yourself a warm-up. Warm-up could be anything like a five-minute, 10-minute thing in your chambers before you come into the courtroom. I have advocates that I know who will spend a good half an hour meditating before they go to court, and that's their way of managing their energy and getting them in to one place. Whatever your concept of meditation is, is great. It might be that you walk around the block listening to music. It might be that you do 20 star jumps in the car park. I don't care. But something to bring your body into the zone. And then if you can get your voice into it, that's even better. So lots of shaking of hands, shaking of feet, shaking your massaging your face, massaging your body, anything smacking your arms, anything to get the energy out. Because it is, again, a high wire act where nerves build up and when you hold that energy in, it leaks out in other ways. For other people, they get teary, they get frightened, they go red, they get dry in their mouth, which is all part of the animal behaviour of what we're doing. But if it builds up too much, you can't articulate the thoughts clearly. 
So that's where we want to dissipate the energy. So when we're looking at warm-ups, it's a source of twofold, really. Something physical, some form of movement to bring your body into the zone, and then also something vocal. Because one thing that I've realised is that quite often we prepare at home, in chambers, at the office, and then come to court and deliver it for the first time. We don't rehearse and we don't practice. I think it's crazy. I know. <laughs> and <That's> it's, <laughs> it's crazy to me too. It's a time thing quite often because you don't have time to yeah, go and true. do that. Or it maybe you're true. delivering an argument and it's an hour. I don't have two or three hours to keep on practicing, I say in my head. And so I don't do it. Yes. <laughs> Probably isn't true. So as part of the warm up, could that also be just... For example, saying the first few lines of your mm. argument, just to get mm. your voice warmed up, just to hear yourself yep. say it. Are those the sort of things that we can do? Because <laughs> the reason why, why I'm saying that as well is just, you know, for people who might think, oh no, this is just far too out there for me. This, I, I'm not going to go and do jumping jacks anymore. No. I don't do that in my spare time. No. I'm not going to do that now. But I was just wondering, like, you know, could it be... For example, I'm going to purposefully and intentionally go for a walk around the block mm. just to get my body warmed up. Yeah. Then while I'm doing that, I could also say the first two sentences totally. of my opening so that I come to court ready yes. and I can arrive. Yes. And I use the jumping jacks as a audacious example. Oh dear, how we dare we do jumping jacks in a courtroom. <laughs> but, you know, that, that sound makes it sound terribly actory and horrible. But, you know, I could make you do some really actory things if you want. But actually, yes, it, it's lots of very creative ways of doing it. Firstly, though, I think it's a matter of changing your paradigm. The paradigm is it's not an intellectual act. It's an energetic act that you're entering into. And no athlete, because you are athletes. I'll tell you why you're athletes. You're intellectual athletes in a way. You're doing something that's very, very high impulse, because of the claustrophobia of the room, because of the emotional intensity of everything, and because of the intellectual rigour that you're required, it's really a mental athleticism. So it's crazy that you don't come in and you haven't prepared with some kind of energetic warm-up, right? You've certainly done your intellectual warm-up by writing the thing and talking it out with counsel or your team, so you have to enter into it. So there's creative ways of doing it. I understand totally that sometimes, and particularly for, you know, family law or criminal law, that sometimes it's, I've just got the brief, I've got to go in and just deliver now extempore, that you don't have time to do anything that's, you know, the luxury of going and warming up. So creatively, there are a few things that you can do. Firstly, change your paradigm and realise that, yes, I have to do something energetic to warm myself up. Secondly, is to reprioritize your timing give yourself at least if you can the luxury of five minutes you know for the commercial lawyers that's most likely doable to redesign your diary and say to the entire legal team that you have no one talks to me for five minutes while I'm going to do this and you do whatever you need to do in that five minutes if that's too hard then you can integrate it in the writing of it maybe it's slightly terrifying but really valuable for people to speak it, speak your argument, and then write it. That could be interesting, is that you walk around your room and you're speaking it and, you know, physicalizing it. Walk around your room and speak it out loud because you often hear things better and the arguments come out better when you speak them. 
But certainly as you're writing is to speak it as you're writing because you're right. People write it, then they go and deliver it. So no no wonder it comes out as a mumble and a flat expression of your ideas. I'm just finding this really fascinating because I can see how if we have our own individual bespoke warm-ups that we have before we get to court, it's going to make a difference to our energy, but also the way that we're perceived. Because I feel in a way that we seem more in control, actually. We sit more relaxed, we're more in control. And I was just wondering how that relates to being memorable and also being able to leave your calling card, if I can put it in that way. And I see that you have had Anesta Weeks on your podcast. Yes, I have. Who I know as well. And she does use that phrase, leaving your calling card, which I love and I have stolen, Anesta, I apologise, but I love that. I think the act of being an advocate is an interesting one. And the thing that struck me right at the very beginning of being around barristers was this phrase that definitely in the common law jurisdictions you use, which is to be dispassionate. And I was so intrigued and baffled by that because, you know, I'd come from a performance world where why would you be dispassionate? You know, there's emotions part of influence. And I understand now the line, where do you invest in the story, invest in the client's desires, which must carry the emotional tenor of your story must carry influence to the judge, but it must be laid with the intelligence. So that's where the dispassion, it's the line of theatrical and flat. So in that realm of dispassion, where does that leave the concept of the calling card? Who are you as an advocate in a courtroom? You're not certainly not there to grandstand, although some advocates like to do that. You know, you're not there to thump your chest, although some advocates like to do that. But what are we there for? We're there to make a clear argument and assist the court, assist the judge to understand what you're doing. What does it mean to leave your calling card as an advocate? And it is to have presence and to exude an energy, exude significance in a room. And significance is an energetic thing. It's not just about speaking with a loud voice, even though that's also energy. It's how does my idea land in a room and does it have space to exist for people to hear it, not just hear it, but integrate it and let it linger for us to take it in. And that doesn't have to be every idea, of course. They're the significant ideas. And to memorable I suppose it comes down to what's your intention in the courtroom? What do you want to be memorable for? And golly, I don't even know if many barristers think about this, but to walk into a courtroom and to think to yourself, what is my intention here? And to be really deliberate about that, write it down. I want to, I want to be clear. I want to bamboozle everybody. You know, what is your intention I want them to feel overwhelmed by our case. What's the intention? If you want to be memorable for being clear, then it will be about you 
coming into a room and being clear. So if you're rushing into a room and you've got, oh my gosh, I've only had an hour to do this and I haven't warmed up and I have not prepared and I you know, didn't sleep and I've got a baby and you sit down and you start, your argument's never going to be clear. So to define your intention actually the day before you walk into that courtroom and then everything that you do from the day before leading up to the moment you walk into the courtroom is working towards that intention. How you answer emails, whether you answer the phone, whether you have a cup of tea in the morning, like all of that is your preparation towards walking in with that intention. And then when you come into the room, you'll be memorable for the energy that you carry into the room. It's sort of like the same when you see someone walk into the pub or the bar and you a bar and you think, whoa, that person's got something going on or that person was memorable because it's an energetic experience you have of them. So it's something that you can deliberately step in with. I just think barristers don't think to do that. You're completely right. And I'm finding this so interesting. It might sound weird. I always have an intention for the witness. I always think, how do I want the judge to perceive this witness before I cross-examine them? And that's at the forefront of my preparation when I'm dealing with my questions. And it really helps frame the way I ask questions, where certain areas go. But I never think about the intention for myself. And so that brings me to another area that I wanted to explore with you really, which is the context and the subtext of a case. We get the context from the facts and the documents. That's all there. How do we pick up on the subtext? What are we looking for? Oh, Bibi, this is my favourite, most delicious part of speaking. Subtext is delicious. That sounds so theatrical, but I mean it deliberately. Because so much happens in the subtext. So let's define subtext. And what I mean by subtext is what else is going on in the room other than the words. This is a trap for lawyers as well, because that's the world you are educated in, is in the words, is that we become so reliant on the truth in the words. And a lot of the time, that's what you're investigating is, is that what you mean by that word or phrase? So you're investigating the truth in the words. But because we as a culture and a generation are so text dominant and we use words too much, too many words, that we become so reliant on them that we forget to read what else is going on. So what else is going on? It could be when someone says something, but we know they mean something else. So we have an instinct that they mean something else. Sometimes the meaning is totally different from the words that are being said. And barristers are quite good at going in and and investigating when there's a dissonance between the meaning of what someone's saying and what they are actually saying and investigating and saying, well, when you say that, did you mean X, Y, Z? Then the other layers below the subtext, there's the emotional energy that's going on. So you might see a witness, and you all see it, a witness might tear up or get stern or reluctant. They might push back or they get stuttery. Often we see that happening, but good advocates will go in and investigate that. A lot of the time advocates because they're so stuck to their notes and they're reading their questions, they're not even looking at the witness to read all of that 
rich information about what is going on for that human being. Why is their jaw flicking? Why are the muscles in the back of their jaw flicking? Why are they holding their breath? Are you even aware that your witness might be holding their breath? Can you feel your opposing counsel getting prickly without actually turning around and seeing that? If you're aware of all that, that stuff, that is really useful, truthful information. What are the behaviors going on in the room? And why is that happening? Why is the witness over-talking? Why is the judge falling asleep? (laughs) Why is the judge holding his or her breath? Why is my opposing counsel sending me barbs? All of this, we, we kind of read it, but we try and ignore it and clutch to the intellect clutch to the words we've prepared earlier but actually all of this stuff that's going on underneath the words is food for truthfully what's going on and if you have the space and that's why you want to be arriving and breathing and dealing with moments if you have the space we intuit it and I use that word deliberately we intuit it we have an instinct it's happening but if you have the space to firstly read it the stuff underneath then secondly acknowledge it and then thirdly take time to work out how you're going to deal with it then I think you get into the truth of it faster and dealing with it doesn't mean you have to step in and say I see you're crying there witness but it might be that you navigate that moment and maybe you decide this is too much I'm going to go somewhere else so that she has time to breathe you know so it helps you navigate And that's why we need to go right back to simple arriving, breathing and choosing the moments and creating space because it's this, there's so much going on below the text. This is so much more than voice coaching. I know. So let's now go on to some practical solutions for some common problems. And we've both mentioned the flat voice, boring, judge falling asleep. And I've been there. I've been there. I've bored myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, I'm just here revealing all my secrets. Yeah, it's great. Embarrassing secrets. I'm interviewing uh, you, Bibi. You. I'm interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we avoid being monotone? There's a couple of reasons one might be monotone. Now, monotone is one note, right? So usually what happens for most adults in this day and age is that we would probably live in, you know, one or two notes, three or four maybe if we're lucky and we practice that consistently at work unless you're able to get out into the world and throw your voice around and sing or throw a ball with the kids and you know extend your voice to all different places then we get locked into a couple of notes so firstly there's habit that holds you you're kind of in a dead zone with your voice then you add on the pressure that where I better not do anything um, outrageous here or irreverent. And so I'm going to hold myself tighter. So physical tension and holding breath will flatten you out. And sometimes that habit will just disallow us from going into the other colors of your voice. Again, it comes back to the paradigm of what are you doing here? Your job isn't to entertain and it isn't to be theatrical but we still have to tell the story and we still have to convince energetically the judge or the witness or the jury particularly the jury you know the jury doesn't hear like a judge the jury hears like they're watching tv but the jury hears they're used to hearing tv 
and the colors and movements and energy and expression in the voice. So if you're monotone, you're majorly doing yourself a disservice to the argument and to your client. The jury can't hear it. They're, what they're listening for is you telling them how to feel. I think that's a really interesting idea, right? So, you know, you might say to the jury, so ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the evidence is overwhelming. It might be that phrase. Now, I could say that in a flat way. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the evidence is overwhelming. And now your job is to find da 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 But if you wanted to add part of the story to that to influence their decision or to communicate the significance of that idea you might find more energy in the word overwhelming so ladies and gentlemen of the jury the evidence is overwhelming you know you could find a bit more color in it now we don't want to go too far because that's not the role of the court it's not your role but you still have to tell them the point so too far is, so ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, that's ridiculous. You're not going to do that in a courtroom. We might do that on stage, but it doesn't work. So it's where do you find that line of telling the story, but the difference between telling the story and not making it anemic. And I think we spend too much time going into the flat one or two notes anemic version because we're scared that we're going to overwhelm or over embellish the idea. We've still got to tell the story. And do we also get over that monotonous voice by practicing as well? Yes. Because if we've done the warm up, yes. if we've said, if we've actually heard what it sounds like in the privacy of our own homes, cars, office, then you can start seeing where to start adding the colour to the words. Yes. So let's talk about some real practical things. What's always going to happen is when you're under pressure and you're in action, your range will diminish anyway. So the best way to rehearse or practice is to do it in an extreme way or a more extreme way than you normally would. So there's a couple of ways you could do it. I mentioned earlier, if you can just get out of the house and use your voice in extreme ways and every week, once a day, that would be really good healthy for your practice in court. By that, I mean, literally take the dog to the park and yell, go fetch, or throw a frisbee to it, or throw a ball to it, or take a child, borrow a child and go to the park and play on the climbing frames with them. Whatever you're doing, like do it vocally or go to a sporting match and go to a rock concert. Can we do that these days? But whenever you can, and do use your voice to extremes. Because the more you stretch it out, the more play you have. So that's number one. The second thing is, as you mentioned, speak your text aloud in your chambers. Get Pull it apart and put it in your body and put it in your voice. Speak it aloud. But when you speak it aloud, it's not just Ladies and gentlemen of the court, I'd like to tell you that blah, blah, blah. You got to speak it aloud, like get up, walk around the room. I often have, and this is going to sound actory, but I'd love you to do it anyway, because it's all about play. The more playful you can get with your voice, the more range you'll have in court. To jump up and down, walk. You've got a, a one thought, walk to the other side of the room, jump in the air and say the thought as you're jumping and landing and then walk somewhere else. Jump, speak it, land. Move your body around and dip, get on the floor, roll around. Anything you can do to stretch your voice around. Now that's going to be terrifying for advocates. I know you're all shrinking in your chairs right now while I'm saying this. If that's too much, then at least stand up and at least 
play with your voice and take your voice into different places as you're speaking. So it will go too far. So ladies and gentlemen of the court, I'm going to you know, do silly stuff like that. The best place to do it is in the car. Everyone can hear everyone these days. I think if you can get in a car and put the windows up, then that's the sort of most private place you can be and do it there uh, to just find the extremes because we've forgotten how to do that these days. So that's the practical stuff. It sounds a bit ridiculous and silly, but that's the most practical way to do it. The other thing that I'm very curious about is, um, there we go, the filler words. I say um so much. There is, you know, like, how do we deal with that? They are many and varied, aren't they, those filler words? And I find that they are, the um is a perpetual, always there. The other ones that come in and out, are often to do with the flavour of the generation. So like is everyone who's got a teenager will know that there's the like that comes in every so often. But the ones that are more about the ers and the ahs and the ums, I find they are often to do with holding space. It's almost like you've put the pause button on. If you had a clicker, wouldn't it be nice to have a clicker in court, like a remote control for courtrooms, and you could just press pause and just say, okay, I just need to work out what I'm going to say here and then press play again. Wouldn't that be lovely? So I think the um is a little bit like your remote control where you press the pause button, and it's a way for you to hold space while you're thinking or to fill time to indicate to the room, don't interrupt me right now. I'm still in the middle of my thought. I don't hate the um because I think it's a useful utterance for us. It's only when it becomes so consistent that it becomes distracting. So I, I don't beat yourself up about it too much, Bibby, or anyone else, but it's when it becomes distracting. What's the antidote to the um is to breathe, which sounds, again, simple and trite. The four-stage process that I work through with anyone in professional voice use is these four steps. Arrive, breathe, vibrate, and speak. And I have exercises for each of them that follows the philosophy of both Kristen Linklater and Cicely Berry, which is about relaxing first, opening your body, managing your habits, arriving energetically so that you can breathe and then you can ultimately, your voice will pick up its range and resonance in order to articulate speak at the end. So if we're going to navigate or manage the ums and ahs, it's about landing in your body and arriving again so that you're creating space to choose. Often the um or the ah will fill the space because we're trying to choose on the fly. So if you feel you're ahead of yourself a little bit, that's when you will um and ah. Or if you're hearing yourself um and ah, that's your signal, internal alarm bell that says, I'm ahead of myself right now. I need to stop and land, get back in my body, get into my heels, let my pelvis sit on top of my legs, let my belly go and just breathe. Give yourself a moment to land. Again, it's a nanosecond, like you mentioned before, but it is a landing in your body so that you can then undo and detach from trying to continue. So there's something to do with detachment, not being attached to being on the same, in the same gear or in the same time signature. I think that's a lovely idea. You know, sometimes we get stuck in a time signature or a speed and we're ahead of ourselves and we 
or, or our mouth is moving faster than our head is. So how do we come back? We change the time signature, which means to land and stop and give yourself a moment. So the ums and ahs are really good uh, indicators for when you're outside the zone. I didn't even think of that. It's actually indicating something to you and you can do something about it rather than trying to deal with the symptom as opposed to the cause of why I'm umming and ahhing. Oh, there's so much power in that. So would that be the same approach that we'd use for speaking too quickly or perhaps too quietly? Too quickly and quietly are different things. So let's talk about too quickly. Too quickly, again, is a habit or nerves. And it's a paradigm shift, again, coming back to what am I doing here? Am I letting the room hear the thought? I like to sometimes think of thoughts or were ideas, not sentences, just thoughts, as I'm a little bit sadistic with this, little bombs that I drop. But I want the bomb to go off in the room and then I actually want to watch the bomb go off and I want to see what, what it does to the room and see what ripples and what it affects. And then I can go to the next one. Okay, that's an interesting impact. That, that made the judge do this. Okay, now, and now I'm going to do this little bomb and let it go and so it's a paradigm shift really because speed is about relying on the text wanting to get through the text oh my gosh I've got to keep going because I've got to keep speaking and I've got to get to the end you know it's a little bit like and off I go and I'm running down you know you've got no control the horse has bolted without you so again it's saying wait I'm going to get off the horse and I'm just going to go one bit at a time now it doesn't mean that you speak slowly all the time because that's not natural we constantly shift in our speeds and our range and our pausing or whatever it is but it's about control it's about real true control coming back to am i in this moment and are they getting it gosh i can't underestimate that and barristers i think fall into the trap too often where i see they will put something into the room and then they'll go to the next thought when the audience doesn't take it in that is not clever it's just not clever because that's where translation happens. If you're putting something in a room, you've got to watch that that person takes it in in the way you mean it. And if they don't take it in in the way you mean it, then you have to do something different or change it or redesign it for them. So if you're ahead of yourself and you jump, jump to the next thought, then they will likely translate you. And that's not clear communication. That's not connection. I can really see how that works for speed. Mm. Also introducing pauses, because I've never thought of it. I like bombs. Yes, oh, bombs. No, that sounds really weird. But <laughs> I like that. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're like flower bombs or something. They're yeah. something a bit more cupcakes and unicorns <laughs> that I can think of. But <laughs> no, I like the idea of setting something off and dropping that bomb mm. and then just seeing how it impacts everyone and how they take it in mm. because that's completely shifted my way of thinking. Cause I'm now thinking, let that idea land and mm. see how it's going. Pause, then move on to the next bit. So that's incredibly helpful. Can I talk on pause for a moment? Because I rarely use the word pause because modern world has interpreted it as something that is uh, waiting for five seconds, hollowness. And actually in the pause, there is so much going on if we think about the subtext and emotional and primal layers underneath. So when you give a moment for an idea to land and you sit in it, 
don't sit vacantly. Observe what's happened in the room because of what you've done. And that's where the real truth lives. There's really interesting information in that silence. I mean, people talk about being scared of the silence. I think silence is rich with information. And I I think people get scared of silence because they're thinking that people are looking at them. So it's suddenly about it becomes uh, subjective. But actually, if you think of the pause as a time when you can look outwards from yourself to investigate what's happening now for everyone else, it's the pressure's off. That's where some really good work can be done in the silence. Speaking of silence, we'll go to the opposite, volume. Volume comes from two things. Intention to speak, intention to be heard, actually. Do you intend for the person over there to hear you? So if you're looking and the judge is the furthest person away from you and you're looking at them, what happens is your voice follows your intention. That's just one of the basic principles of voice. Voice follows intention. So I'm thinking, you know, right now where I am is downstairs is my partner making dinner. How modern am I? He's downstairs. And so I'm going to say, Hey, Ben, and my voice will pick that up and he will hear that, right? But that was me not saying, oh, I've got to have this amount of breath and I've got to push it out. It just followed my intention. So to be really clear about where your voice wants to go. And then the second part of it is breath. The breath is the fuel. It's the thing that carries your voice out. So if you haven't got, and I don't mean you have to have a big breath in order to carry, but you have to have a elasticity and availability for breath to come in. And I think oftentimes we hold our the channel from your lips down to your belly, your lungs, we hold that really tightly. And so if there's no space for breath to come in, then there's no capacity for us to carry the voice out. When also you have the breath and you have the intention and you have relaxation, then you can have resonance. So resonance is the richness, it's the timbre, it's the texture of your voice. So, you know, I can have a really brittle, hard, you can hear that kind of metallic texture in my voice. Well, it's not even texture, it's metal. And that's me just tightening a bit in my throat and my jaw, my tongue. But if I relax that space in the back of my throat and let my breath do the work, then I have a bit more rich warmth to my voice and I can go to different places in my voice. So physical tension is what's going to retract you from having volume and range and resonance and warmth and humanity, actually, and agility. And that takes me to where it, I think this is one of the more interesting things for barristers is to be agile in your choices because in one moment you may have a witness that you need to really rein in. You know, you have to be very direct and find a very assertive tone. And then the next minute you might have the witness breaking down. So you have to find that agility of your humanity to be able to say, hey, would you, do you want to just take a moment? Is that, do you, are you all right? Do you know you come into that warmth that you might do with a child who's just hurt her little knee when she's five? It's so important to have agility in your voice with a jury or the witnesses or the judge even, you know, many times when the judge is pushing hard on you and you might need to be able to back off and say, I'm sorry, Your Honour, I I just need a moment or whatever you need. I understand, Your Honour, and if I could take you back just a moment, you need to have that agility in your voice to do that. So that's why it's an athleticism. 
Because if you are stuck in a habit with your voice and you haven't played in the instrument of your voice, then you are so limited in your capacity to communicate and move and persuade anyone in life, actually, but definitely in the courtroom. And does agility in general also apply to online hearings? Mm. At the moment, we're having a conversation virtually. We're not, well, (laughs) you're in Australia and I'm in in London. Which I love. (laughs) We've had more and more virtual hearings. And so what sort of changes do we need to make or can we make to adapt to having an online presence instead? There's a lot of practical things that you can do which are outside the realm of voice. You know, just really knowing that you're actually working to camera. Actors spend time working on their on-stage skills and their on-camera skills. They're very different things. So outside the realm of voice, just knowing what's your frame, what's behind you, what's your shot, how much space do you have around your frame for you to move in, And when you're physically getting involved in telling the story with your hands, it's an awkward thing. You have to bring your hands up next to your cheeks. I mean, who does that? But we have to do that these days, right? Because if you're doing your hands down here in the normal place that you below your sort of waistline, we don't really get the message. So there's a bit of that practical element of working online. But again, the problem with working online is that we get contracted into this smaller space than you even have in the courtroom. We've got this tiny little frame, you're sitting in a desk, you're in a tiny little physical space. And so that then contracts everything energetically. Breath, body, range, resonance, agility really does. So it's really about get yourself off the chair, stretch around, do some physical stretches, whatever you know that you've got in your own physical practice for your body do that. Get on the floor and do some physical stretches before you get on camera because it's going to contract. After an hour, your body will contract and your energy will contract. If online trials could give them have a break every hour so people could get up and move around, that would just be heaven. And I don't know if you're doing that yet, but it should be a practice. I want to talk to you about something that trial lawyers tend not to discuss amongst each other because we present outwardly in control, confident most of the time. But we don't discuss nerves and we don't discuss fear. So starting with nerves firstly, how do you suggest that we can manage those so as not to impact our voices when we're speaking in court? I always start with the psychological. So for yourself, know that it is an energetic act that you're doing and treat yourself accordingly that it's not just an intellectual act. And I think the nerves kick in when you don't channel them. So what nerves really are is an excess of electrochemical impulses that come in through some form of stimulus, uh, optic nerve, touch, anticipation, whatever it is, go through your body to your nervous system. Because you're going into firstly a heightened situation Secondly, remember the primal, we've got the the text, the subtext, the emotional and the primal levels. On a primal, primal level, what you're actually doing as a human being is you're stepping up in front of other people in the herd 
and because we're herd animals, really. And you're standing up and you're saying, well, hey, everybody, I'm going to say something that might challenge you all. So from a herd animal perspective, that could mean that you will get left behind in the herd and die on the savannah, right? So our bodies are designed to do anything to keep us safe. So, you know, we get this massive intake of impulses and where they go are to the nerve complexes first. So the biggest nerve complexes in our body is the solar plexus, which is in the sense like a center of your diaphragm, which if you don't know where your diaphragm is, it's below the rib bones, the base of the rib bones. And it's a sheet of muscle that cuts your body in half. So it's in a huge dome. Right in the center of that is a ball of nerves called the solar plexus. So that's one. The other nerve um, plexus is at the back of your sacrum where if we had tails that's where and also another one actually at the top of your spine which is called the bull vertebra at the top where there's a lot of information that comes in there and then everything innervates out from that point so what happens when people get butterflies is all the information coming into your solar plexus and if your diaphragm is tight which for most humans these days it is unless you're really doing good breathing practice if your diaphragm's tight, then what happens is the nerves build up in the solar plexus and they're not being, by the movement of the diaphragm, sent out. And so there's a backup. So it's a little bit like you're shaking a champagne bottle and you're keeping the cork on. The energy's not going anywhere. So that's where people get the shake in the voice or you get shaky hands or your legs shake or there's a build up, right? So you're basically shaking the champagne bottle and you're standing in the courtroom going, oh my God, I've got to wait, I've got to. And then the first thing that happens is you speak. A lot of people will say to me, oh, after I get through the first minute, then I feel fine. It's because you've let the energy out. So actually what we've got to do is go back a step and manage the energy before you walk in the room. Because it's a bit like what you said before, you know, most barristers will prepare it all and the first time they speak it is when they walk, you know, get up on their feet, which is crazy. It's the same thing with nerves is that there'll be a build up and then they explode the nerves out in the first minute or so and then they feel like they've settled a bit afterwards. So actually is to dissipate the nerves, the energy before you walk in. Some people feel like they want to throw up, some people faint you know so i've had many people extreme versions of nerves the more nerves that you get the more you need to earlier you need to manage it in the process so if you need to the night before start managing it or the hour before whatever it is but the moment you start feeling the build there's a few things that you can do firstly walk it out shake it out run it out jump it out physically move it out of you right so uh, you see actors do that shaking their hands thing and shaking their legs and shaking their shoulders and I mean any of that do any shaking the energy out of you deep breath that's why people say take a deep breath because literally what you're doing is you're dissipating the nerve solar plexus center and you're moving the energy through your diaphragm and out Yawning is excellent too because it gets lots of breath in and it stretches the shape on the inside and it moves the energy out. If there's anyone out there that really wants to just get in touch with me, if you have real problems with nerves, it sometimes it is a longer practice of preparing for the moment than just sort of doing quick fixes now. So I'm happy to chat to people if they want to call me. There is a lovely little technique that I will share with you, Bibi, if you want to do a quick little exercise that people might take home. So a nice little takeaway for people. It's very easy. So I'm going to do it. And Bibi, you can do it along if you'd like to. When you feel that real heightened build, 
and it's a lovely thing to do in court because you kind of no one knows you're doing it. Then you breathe all your air out on an F right to the end until you feel the tight squeeze. So I hope you're all doing this at home while you're listening, right? You can do it. So you're squeezing, squeezing, squeezing until there's nothing there, right? Don't breathe in yet. So you're squeezing all the way out on the end to the end of the F. Then when you've got to the end, close your lips and breathe in through your nose. So you'll feel your belly fill, side ribs, back ribs, front ribs, and just take your time. When you get to the top of that, then breathe it out on an F again, all the way to the end. So really the process is you go out on an F, in through your nose, out on an F, in through your nose. But the trick with it is that each time you take longer. So when you're going out on an F, you go longer, try and make it longer than the time before. In through your nose, slow it down, slow it down, take it longer, longer, longer. So that you're following your mind like a sort of um, you're on an elastic band, you're moving it back and forth or a typewriter or something. You follow your mind along the breath. And then I'll tell you what, after about five iterations of that, six, you'll be pretty chilled. You'll be pretty centered and pretty still. And what it does is it brings you into connection again with your thoughts, feelings, mind and body and voice are all in one place so that you're not ahead of yourself. The more extreme you are with your nerves, the longer you need to do it. Sometimes I start doing that an hour before really heightened stuff. So you might even start doing it the night before, you know, you only need to do it for a couple of minutes and then, okay, I've let the energy go and then it'll build again. I like to think of it like you're in the wings. So when you're in the wings, like actors are behind stage, that's called in the wings, is the time when you're not acting yet, but you're anticipating, you're getting toey, like horses, you're getting toey behind the barrier. So that's the time that you're not thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to say that. Oh, why are my clients really angry? Oh my God, I've got to do all of this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not prepared. And that's where you're going to build the nerves. In the wings is the time where you're actually clearing. So your job as a performer, because you are both a performer and a barrister, by the way, or an advocate, your job as a performer is to clear the energy, not build the energy. And that's a practice. It's something you have to commit to and know you have to do. Even more intense than nerves is, of course, fear. And I've been contacted by a listener who said that their fear was so overwhelming that sometimes they contemplated leaving the profession full stop because they just couldn't manage it. Do you have any suggestions or advice for how to deal with that fear? Call me. Call you. (laughs) Just call me. I really hear that. I have heard that story as well across many professions, actually, but definitely in court because there's many ways to deal with that. It's a lot of it's psychological and it's a bit about reframing. So just on the fear scale, there's comfort zone, stretch zone and panic zone and they're concentric circles. Comfort zones in the middle, panic zones on the outside. If you're wanting to leave the profession, you are in panic zone, right? So we don't want to be in, pa- in panic zone. You firstly can't learn anything. You can't achieve anything and you can't think. So there's no point in being in panic zone. But the problem is that if that's your profession, then the only way to get you back, the way the, the best place to be is in stretch zone and probably in the middle of stretch zone. You don't want to be on the outer edges of stretch zone because in stretch zone, you have time to breathe, hear, think, create, a little create in some form. Imagine, read what's going on in the room. 
So we want for her, what I would do is we've got to say, we've got to get her back into stretch zone, which means actually practicing in lower stakes exchanges. Sometimes what happens is people will have an experience that has thrown them right out into panic zone and they failed at something, they stuffed something up, they got shamed, you know, right to the core sense of who we are. It burns on the inside. It hurt us. And our very impressionable inner child, which we all have, by the way, no matter how smart you are as a legal professional, our impressionable inner child will feel that and carry that. So it's really down to how do you nurture, look after that inner child? Because that's the one that's going to keep remembering, oh, when I do this, I feel shame. When I do this, I always stuff up. I might forget my words or whatever it is. So what we've got to do is redesign that story because really the inner child's the thing that's trying to speak the loudest for you at that point and it's stopping you doing it. So what we've got to do is redesign the story for that inner child and actually give that inner psychological, psychic, whatever word you want to use it, inner self. We have to give that an experience that it's okay and it's safe. And sometimes that takes a while because we need to build those comfort and stretch spaces rather than keep repeating the panic. Because if you keep repeating the panic zone, it is self-perpetuating. So it's a bit of a psychological journey, that one. So happy to talk through anyone if they want to give me a call to talk it through. That's really kind of you. And that also leads me very nicely into my next section of questions, which is really about the services that you provide to help people master their voices. Can you just give us an overview of what services you do provide? I run a consultancy in Sydney in Australia and I work all around the world. I think I've worked in 18 countries now and I have a actually a faculty of amazing consultants who work with me who work on the Australian Bar Association course and South African Bar Association and Malaysia and uh, in the UK. We've worked all around the world. And I've found for barristers the best kind of training from us because we're all working online now it's very easy to very accessible but the best work for barristers is individual coaching because it's you know voice is very individual and and your experiences are very personal so in the individual coaching time we can get pretty deep into habits and your story about your voice and work with that and we're very very practical as well we always give you very clear technique and and practical work to take away skills. So there's that as an option. And then as a another option, I do have an, um, which you have done, Bibi, my voice online masterclass, which is six hours of pre-recorded content, actually partly filmed in a chambers in Australia and in my studio. So it's theory and practice about the arrive, breathe, vibrate and speak fundamentals and it's designed for business professionals so it's not very actory although tell me Bibi how you found it (laughs) I thought it was great what I was really surprised about was how effective it was Mm. because I wasn't with you I had never met you Mm. prior to us speaking about the podcast and I was really surprised about the differences that it made and how the ABVS arrive breathe vibrate speak was just really so so effective speaking of the abvs method which we have discussed 
a little bit during our conversation. Can you just expand on what that is for our listeners who might be interested in taking your online course or contacting you for group work or individual coaching? ABVS is something that I've evolved over the years I've been working as a simplified version of the training that I have done as a you know teacher in voice and it is a logical progression of dealing with the body first arriving arriving means of course physically you're in the room but also are you energetically ready to not just start the entire trial or the opening or the closing or whatever you're doing but are you ready to just give this idea to let it land so it's just it, arriving is to do with your energy in that moment physically and energetically arriving breathing then can you breathe what's your breathing doing and is that carrying your voice out vibrate so you're then the sound of you the range and quality is coming out in order to speak articulate that at the last second into your intelligence so the abvs is something that you can do before you are in the courtroom like in your chambers or however but certainly it's designed to be done every moment so that you're infusing it it's like your little heartbeat in between the thoughts to keep you centered it can take you years to do abvs in the more sophisticated actor form of it or you could do it in a split second so it's a little bit of an enigma the abvs <laughs> What are your three practical tips that you can give our listeners for improving their advocacy? My number one tip has to be to reframe your thinking that speaking is not just an improvisation, but it's also an energetic act. And I think I've said that many times, but I think sometimes there's a bit of reframing that needs to happen and if you already know that to step in with that not just psychological sense but physical energetic sense. So that's number 1. Number 2 is to be clear on what is your intention in being in this moment with other people and that your job in that room is to help the court and to communicate the message. So the underlying concept of communicate is to commune. And I think the practical application of that in a courtroom is to connect. Am I connecting my thoughts with my voice, with my body, and is it connecting with where it's supposed to be going? Does the judge get it? Do I connect with the witness? And, and I don't mean connect as in, hey, we're best friends, but are they getting where I'm at? Is this, are we connecting? So that's number two, that's communicating. And number three is to deal in the moments and to allow your body, feelings, psyche, and I use that word deliberately, as in your psychology and your energy, to be present in the moment in order for you to create space to choose what to say. So you're dealing in moments and that's when you can find your voice and your ideas 
more specifically. Where can our listeners connect with you online? I have two websites, cornellvoice.com or the online website is cornellvoiceonline.com. That's for the masterclass. Or they could send me an email, lucy at cornellvoice.com. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Bibby. And thank you for creating this beautiful podcast. And I'm sure it's a really rich resource for everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.